Beloved, I invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Matthew, the book of Matthew chapter 28. We, of course, as a congregation, have been uh, walking through the book of Romans uh, for, I think, 46 weeks uh, now, and uh, we're taking a little break today. I thought it might be uh, helpful for us uh, to take a little pause and to consider the doctrine of baptism with so many baptisms happening. Uh, And so, uh, would you please stand as we read... Matthew 28, verses 18 through 20. Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Let us pray. Our Father, we thank you for this text, for this great commission upon your church. We ask, Lord, you'd help us to understand it, particularly as it relates to baptism. What is baptism and how are we to understand it? Oh, Lord, be glorified and show us Christ pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. We are going to have uh, VBS uh, soon, and we're looking forward to that. And uh, oftentimes, and uh, we can remember back to our childhoods, and we think, that's where I memorized the Great Commission in, in Vacation Bible School. And, and uh, if you were to ask people, say, what is the first word of the Great Commission? What would they say? Go, Right? But it's not go. Uh, The first word of the Great Commission, as you see there in verse 18, is what? All. It's not go. It's all. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. If you didn't have the all, you wouldn't want to know about the go. Right? If you're on mission as a Christian... And as a church, you want to know that all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to Christ. Because then we can go, not in our own strength, not having misplaced confidence in in our own gifts and abilities or in the gimmicks and techniques of the world, but we go in the name of Christ and in the authority of Christ knowing that Christ is building His church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. You could say, well, pastor, why do you believe that the gates of hell will not prevail against the church? My answer is because all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to Christ and He's building it. And He's doing so through His appointed means of grace. What are we supposed to be doing in the church? The Great Commission. Before Christ ascended, this was the command and the commission that he gave the church. And he said, all authority is mine in heaven and on earth. Now go into all the world and to make disciples. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, 
I am with you always to the end of the age. And so this great commandment is sandwiched between two wonderful promises. Think of it this way. You are on mission as a Christian. We are on mission as a church. And we're doing so with two glorious promises bookending that command. I have all authority, Jesus says, and I am with you as you do this. Praise the Lord. Now the question is, what are we supposed to be doing? What are we supposed to be doing? Well, Jesus doesn't leave us in the darkness. He says, baptize in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, and teach all that I've commanded you. By the way, that's not just the the red letters in your red letter edition of your Bible. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. What's the word of Christ? The whole Bible. Because Christ is God. He's the living word. And so the church is commanded. This is the mission of the church. The, The mission of the church is a narrow one. We are to make disciples. The mission and calling of individual Christians is a broad one. You go out, you do things like you're a teacher, you're a doctor, you're uh, you're, um, uh, whatever, an IT person, a college professor, construction worker. You see, the mission of the church is narrow. And we see that narrow mission of the church being carried out in the book of Acts. We don't see the apostles starting coffee shops. We don't see the apostles opening businesses. We see the apostles doing that which Christ called them to do. And what Christ called them to do is unique to the church. And we know that the gospel is the power of God into salvation, and so it must be preached and it must be carried out through the sacraments. And so I want us to think for a few minutes this morning about baptism. You know, people don't like to talk about the sacraments very much in Protestant circles. Why? Well, first reason is because people don't want to be afraid. They're afraid that they might be thought of as maybe an Anglo-Catholic, a high church Anglican, or or a Lutheran, or or a Roman Catholic. Like, you know, we're Protestants. We don't really, we're, we're, we're of the more evangelical side of Protestantism, and so we really don't talk about the sacraments very much. They're kind of divisive. They're kind of weird. We don't really understand them very well. Let's just sort of marginalize those. We'll talk about them once in a while because we sort of have to. I mean, you know, Bible talks about them. Jesus instituted them. I guess we should talk about them once in a while. But let's just not talk about them so much. Let's not focus on them too much because, you know, a lot of Christians believe different things about them. Dear ones, a lot of people believe different things about the gospel too. But we preach the gospel and we seek to preach the gospel with clarity and with precision and with love and with humility and in a biblical fashion. And we want to do so with the sacraments as well. I want to give you five quick points about what the sacraments are in general, and then I want to talk to you about baptism for a few minutes. If you're taking notes, five points about sacraments. First of all, a sacrament is instituted by Christ for his church during his public ministry. By the way, I I would guess that there are probably 20% of the people in this room right now who have never heard a sermon on the sacraments or on a sacrament. 
set forth. Now, if you've been in this church for a while, you have. But many, many have not. And so this is why this is so important. A sacrament is instituted by Christ for his church during his public ministry. Clearly, we see Christ instituting baptism and the Lord's Supper. Baptism being instituted at the Great Commission, right here, the text we read. And the Lord's Supper, of course, instituted the night before his death on the cross. Secondly, a sacrament is a sign and seal of the covenant of grace. It's a sign and it's a seal of the covenant of grace. It's a sign in that it signifies or represents Christ and the benefits of salvation in him. It signifies something. It's a sign to something. It's a signpost pointing us to Christ. It is a seal in that it confirms or guarantees God's gospel promises in his word. When you get an official letter, and there's, or let's say you get your driver's license, and there's a seal placed upon it, an official seal. And sometimes they make those seals real special and, and hard to, to recreate because it's, it's so official, they don't want anybody um, faking it. And baptism and the Lord's Supper are seals as well. They, they, there are these seals which authenticate that God's promises are true to our faith and in our hearts. God's gospel promises are true. God doesn't lie. These sacraments reinforce that. The sacraments are God's loyal pledge of this objective truth. This is precisely what a sacrament means. It is derived from the Latin word sacramentum, which means a pledge or an oath. And this sacramentum or this pledge or oath was originally made in the military context. It's the Latin translation of the Greek word mysterion or mystery, which underscores the fact that God reveals himself and his grace through these ordinary means. Paul calls himself in 1 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 1, along with the apostles, stewards of the mysteries of salvation. And so what am I called to do and to be as a minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ? First and foremost, I am a steward of the mysteries of salvation. That is, preached in the word and administered through the sacraments. Because it is through these means that God has attached his promises to save his people from their sins. You may have a rock wall at the youth group, and it's a lot of fun, but it's not a means of grace. Nor is a smoke machine. Nor are all the other things. You know, Mike Horton once says, if you don't clearly explain to God's people what the means of grace are, they will come up with their own. Their own means to have fellowship with God and to know God. It may be through one thing or the other, but it's not going to be through the, 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 the means that God himself has appointed for his church. The simple, ordinary means of grace. Paul calls himself a steward of the mysteries of salvation. Thirdly, a sacrament is a primary means of grace. In other words, God communicates the spiritual benefits of Christ chiefly through these objective means. What does that mean? It means Jesus is up there and we are down here and we ask the question, how do I receive Christ? How do I rest in him? How do I receive his grace? It's through the means of grace. The means through which Christ communicates himself to us. And he does so 
through the preaching of the word, through the administration of baptism and the Lord's Supper and prayer. And all of these things are clearly set forth in our Reformed confessions. What are these objective means? I've just said them. Word, water, bread, and wine. Now, why would Almighty God, why would Almighty God give us preaching and water and wine and bread when He could have given us so many other impressive things to wow people? Are, are, is the world impressed by these means? Well, of course they're not. Nor were we before we came to Christ. But you see, God brings these unadorned, ordinary means of grace, word, water, bread, and wine, and he turns the world upside down through the administration of them because in them is the gospel. And the gospel is the what? Power of God unto salvation for those who believe. And so the Lord uses these ordinary means so that he alone gets the glory, so that he who boasts will boast in what? The Lord. We see this over and over and over again, not least in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Notice with me in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Look there with me. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, he says this. Verse 18, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the what? Power of God. It's what Paul says in Romans 1. I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it, the gospel, is the power of God unto salvation. It's the operative, saving power of God unto salvation, and it comes through the word. The word preached audibly in the sermon, and the word preached visibly at the table and the font through water, bread, and wine. Augustine called them the visible words of God. And they teach us. Paul goes on to write in 1 Corinthians 1, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discerning of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. Now listen, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the what? Power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Why do we replace the ordinary means of grace, with all of our human glory in the life of the church. It's because we have not got this very simple point that it's through these means that God demonstrates His saving power. When will there be a revival in this country? When will there be reformation? When preaching faithful gospel, spirit-empowered preaching once again becomes the priority in our churches. We point our fingers at politicians. We point our fingers at this uh, community uh, um, group. We point our fingers at our, our terrible neighbors. We should be pointing our fingers at ourselves and how little faithful gospel preaching is being done in this country for God's glory. Because whenever there's been a revival 
in church history. It has always come when people are praying earnestly and when pastors are preaching faithfully. It is God's power that comes through these means of grace. The sacraments drive us out of ourselves and point us to Christ and His saving work. They are constant reminders of our profound need for grace in Christ. When this baptism was happening this morning, the thought, you're thinking rightly about this, is how dependent you are upon God's grace, even as this child is. How dependent you are for the forgiveness of sins upon God's sovereign grace as this child is, as these children are. Fourthly, a sacrament is a call to holiness. It's true that the sacraments are first and foremost God's pledge to us to be a faithful father to us through the gift and mediation of his son, but they also serve as that which we, as fully redeemed children in Christ, gratefully pledge ourselves to God to live according to his word and for his glory. And fifthly, a sacrament is a sacred means to create and strengthen unity. Christ's church, baptism and the Lord's Supper demonstrate our unity, represent our unity, and strengthen our unity and oneness in Christ. With these few things in mind, Think about baptism for a few minutes. As I mentioned earlier, these are, this is a divisive subject. Lots of questions arise. Who should be baptized? How much water should be used? Who should administer baptism? In what context should baptism be done? And what should be our main focus in baptism? Is baptism chiefly about our commitment to God and our promise to God, or is it chiefly about God's promise to us? These are important questions to consider. A primary text, of course, for Christian baptism is where it was instituted. The text we looked at this uh, a few minutes ago from Matthew 28. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Here it's important to make the distinction at the outset between the baptism of John the Baptist and Christian baptism. People will point to John the Baptist's baptisms and say, well, look. Or they'll point to Jesus' baptism. Look at the way Jesus was baptized as an adult. That's the only way to do it. Or look at John's baptism. That is Christian baptism. No, it is not. That was the baptism of John. And it was a baptism of repentance. And in the Old Testament, and at the time of Christ, there were all kinds of different baptisms that took place. It wasn't as if there was just one. Christian baptism wasn't instituted until just before Christ ascended into heaven. Again, there were all kinds of baptisms and ceremonial washings in first century Judaism. Christian baptism, however, is instituted by Christ himself, and while having similarities, was new and different. It was inaugurated. Let's see how it's different. Number one, number one, Christian baptism is the new covenant fulfillment of the old covenant sign and seal of circumcision. Baptism is a new covenant realization or fulfillment or replacement of the old covenant sign and seal of circumcision. This background is important if we want to truly understand baptism. The superficial way to understand baptism is to simply view it as our pledge to God to be a faithful Christian 
from this day forth and all of our days. But this misses the main point and thrust of the sacrament of baptism, which is God's loyal, covenant-keeping love set forth in the person and finished work of Jesus Christ. Listen carefully. Even before the foundation of the world, God made a covenant promise to redeem sinners. This covenant, called the covenant of redemption, was made between the Father and the Son, with the elect of God as the object of sovereign grace. We see this, don't we, in Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 4. We see it all over the place. We see it in Ephesians 1, 4, where it says that God set His love and affection upon us even before the foundation of the world. The covenant promise established before time was first expressed, so it was established before time, and it was first expressed in time just after the fall. After Adam and Eve sinned, they were hiding from God, you remember. They were trying to cover themselves. They were ashamed. And God, He comes to them and He expresses a promise to them that the offspring or seed of the woman would crush the head of a serpent, thereby delivering sinners from the tyranny of Satan. Of course, this was fulfilled in Christ's atoning death on the cross. This, this proto-evangelion, this first preaching of the gospel is from Genesis 3.15. Now, God's covenant promise of salvation was more plainly revealed. It was more plainly revealed to our forefather Abraham. In Genesis 12, in Genesis 15 and Genesis 17, we see that God promised Abraham that he would inherit a great land as an everlasting possession, that he would be exceedingly fruitful and from his offspring would spring forth nations and kings, and that from his seed all of the nations of the earth would be blessed. Now in Genesis 15, 6, we learn that Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. That is, he believed in Christ, John 8, 56, Jesus says that Abraham rejoiced to see his day, and he saw it and was glad. And so Abraham believed God, and he trusted God for the Messiah. He looked forward to Christ, and he believed on him, and, they, and that was counted to him as righteousness for salvation, for justification. And Abraham's seed, namely Christ, would bless the nations. Therefore, Paul says in Galatians 3, 7, all those who have faith in Christ, whether Jew or Gentile, are blessed sons of Abraham. Now, Genesis 17 speaks to this covenant as an everlasting covenant. The covenant of grace is an everlasting covenant established before time, expressed first in time in Genesis 3.15, and then expressed in, with even more clarity in Genesis 12. 15, and 17, and then reinforced and re-expressed in other covenants that we see in the Old Testament, which we don't have time to deal with. But it's the same covenant, an everlasting covenant in Genesis 17, a covenant that stretches back into eternity past and goes all the way to eternity future. And with this glorious covenant promise, we see that God Himself appoints an outward sign and seal called what? Circumcision. Called what? Circumcision. So please get this. God makes this covenant promise, established before time, expressed in time, and then now he attaches to it a sign and a seal. 
called circumcision. This sign and seal of the covenant of grace was established by God, now listen, to be a constant physical reminder of God's steadfast love and faithfulness to His covenant promise. As a sign, it represented the cutting away of the filth of sin from our hearts. More importantly, it was a sign pointing forward to Jesus Christ, who Paul says in Colossians 2, is our circumcision. Christ is our circumcision. Circumcision always anticipated the coming of Christ and His work. For on the cursed cross, our blessed Lord was cut off, circumcised from the land of the living, mysteriously cut off from fellowship with His Father, becoming the object of divine wrath and human scorn. And the rite of circumcision, unlike baptism, by the way, is a bloody rite pointing forward to the blood of Christ that would be shed for the cleansing of our sins on Calvary. But that's not all circumcision represented. It was also a sign and representation of God's regenerating, life-transforming, sanctifying grace wrought inwardly by the Holy Spirit. Romans 2.29 says this, Circumcision is a matter of the heart by the Spirit. The Pharisees were trusting in their own circumcision to save them. I'm saved because I'm circumcised. No, circumcision in and of itself, just like baptism in and of itself, was never appointed or given to save. It doesn't have the inherent saving qualities in itself. It was always meant to be that to point to something greater. And circumcision pointed to the work of Christ and it pointed to the work of the Spirit. Circumcision, as well, was an outward and visible seal or pledge of God's covenant promise. We learn in Romans 4.11 where circumcision is referred to as a seal of Christ's righteousness. And who was to receive this sign and seal of God's covenant of grace? Answer, every male in the household, infants and children included. Male infants and male children included. Now, this is what is so important for us to remember in our understanding of Christian baptism. For the sign and seal of Christian baptism is the new covenant replacement of the sign and seal of circumcision, both being signs and seals of the covenant of God's promise of salvation in Christ. They both confirm the truth of that promise. Circumcision anticipates or points forward to the person and work of Christ, and baptism hearkens back to it. Number two, the second thing we learn about baptism. Christian baptism, unlike other baptisms before it, is to be done with water by a lawfully ordained gospel minister in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Now, it's important to say lawfully ordained minister. I received a call many years ago from my aunt, a lovely Christian woman, a Lutheran. She always reminded me of that every time I talked to her. John, when are you coming back to the Lutheran church? Not coming back, I'm sorry to say. Not coming back. She said, well, I have a question for you, John. I said, yes. She said, my grandchildren are with me and they're not baptized yet and it really concerns me. And I thought I would just go ahead and baptize them in the sink right now. What do you think? <laughs> I said, Aunt June, it's not a good idea. And let me walk through it with you. And I explained to her that the meaning of that baptism, the nature of baptism, informs the way we do baptisms. 
There's a reason why if you come to me and say, hey, pastor, I'd like to go ahead on Tuesday afternoon and get baptized in the ocean with just me, my family, and my closest friends. The answer you will hear from me on that is no. I'm sorry, we're not going to do that. The reason why is because baptism is, is, an, is an initiation into the covenant community. And it's to be done with the people of God in the context of corporate worship. On the Lord's Day, I know there can be anomalies to that based on different times and seasons and wars and various other external circumstances, but by and large and in general, that's why we baptize as we do. And so it's to be done by a lawful, lawfully ordained minister in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. How much water should be used? Well, the Bible doesn't specify how much. This matter is not clearly stated in the Bible. Indeed, the Greek word baptismo is, baptizo is employed numerous times and in different ways in the Greek Old Testament and New Testament. Our own confession states that sprinkling, pouring, and dipping are all acceptable modes of baptism. It is more important to remember that baptism should be done by a minister of the gospel with proper biblical instruction attached to it. And so baptism should not be done privately, but in the context of public worship within the covenant community. In other words, within the visible church. Again, there are anomalies. There was a time I'm even remembering just now in my previous congregation where there was a man who had come to know the Lord Jesus Christ, but he was literally in his last days of life. He had been led to the Lord by one of our elders, and he wanted to be baptized. And so what we did is we brought over several church members and several elders, and we had a worship service in his room as he sat in his chair that he could not get out of because he was dying of cancer. And I baptized him. And we sang Amazing Grace. And he was dead just a few days later. But generally speaking, we do it in the context of the local church and the visible church. Baptism is no private affair, just as the Christian life is no private affair. We live in an age of expressive individualism and, and so many quarters of Protestantism and evangelicalism make Christianity about me and Jesus and my Bible and, and the other stuff is just extra and I don't really need that. I just need to cobble together my own spirituality through the internet and through podcasts and through sermons and, and I'm going to sort of be devoted to this celebrity preacher out there who's not even really going to know me and I'm going to have really no accountability and, and my baptism is really not connected to anything except my own personal experience. Because that's what Christianity is all about, right? Our personal experience. But that's not true at all, is it? We don't see that taught in the Bible. We grow in community, amen? We, we grow as Christians in a garden where there are other flowers and plants growing. We need each other. We need the means of grace. We need the covenant community. Baptism is not simply an expression of an individual's faith. The Apostle Paul exhorts the Ephesians in chapter 4 to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace because there is one body and one Spirit just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all. By the way, this means one baptism, one baptism for the community of faith that is in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. There aren't five kinds of baptisms. It also means one baptism. You don't get baptized more than once. 
If, you, if you've been having a hard go of it as a baptized member of Christ's church, you don't say, well, pastor, I'm getting really serious with God now. I want to be, be baptized again. No, what you do in that instance is repent of your sin and come to the table and abide in Christ as you receive the bread and the wine. Repenting of your sins and, and rejoicing in the truth of your baptism, that Christ is a strong Savior. The idea that every time you had a Christian experience or some movement of maturity in a Christian life that you should get rebaptized is once again calling into question the very meaning of baptism. It's not all about us. It's about the promises of God to us and by grace our response to those promises. Christian baptism, thirdly, is a sign and seal of the covenant of grace. The water, having absolutely no in- inherent power, signifies or represents something much greater. It represents the cleansing blood of Christ and the regenerating power of the Holy Spirit. Titus 3 teaches us this. The washing and regeneration of the Holy Spirit. Just as circumcision points us to justification and sanctification in Christ alone, so baptism, our baptisms point us to justification and sanctification in Christ alone. The water representing the cleansing blood of Christ and also the washing and regeneration of the Holy Spirit who cleanses us from our sins in sanctification. Baptism is a seal or a pledge of God's fidelity to His promise. Beloved, this means that every time we see the baptismal waters flow in public worship, we get a portrait of God's grace in Christ. It's God's love on display as the waters are poured out. Through the exercising of our faith at the sacrament of baptism, the Spirit deepens our assurance in the gospel that as surely as you see with your own eyes the baptismal waters flow, the same baptismal waters that you yourself were once baptized with, so surely has God saved you by His grace through faith, not in yourselves or your own works, but in the person and finished work of Jesus Christ. And so that's the role that baptism plays. Baptism wasn't just for the Cochrans and the Tomlinsons. The baptisms were for all of us, that we would remember our own baptisms and all that they signify and represent. Question 69 of of the Heidelberg Catechism says this, How does holy baptism signify and seal to you that the one sacrifice of Christ on the cross benefits you? Answer, in this way, Christ instituted this outward washing and with it gave the promise that as surely as water washes away the dirt from the body, so surely his blood and spirit wash away the impurity of my soul, that is, all my sins. Sounds a lot like the Lord's Supper, doesn't it? Sounds a lot like faithful preaching. This is the genius of the means of grace. They're simple. They're ordinary. You don't need some grand cathedral. You could do it under a tree in Africa. You can do it in a, in a grand church building where God's people are gathered, where lawful ministers are there. The means of grace can be administered. Water, bread, and wine, and the preaching of the word. 
And the power of the gospel is operative by the Spirit in and through these for His glory, pointing us to Christ. Fourthly, Christian baptism should be received by believers and their children. We saw earlier that within the Old Testament covenant community that every male in the household was received a sign and seal of circumcision, infants included. Some of the some argue against infant baptism in our own day and say, well, the kids have no idea what's going on. How are they, they going to remember? How are they going to know? How did male infants receiving the sign and seal of the covenant of grace in the Old Testament know? How did they know? They had no understanding. You see, that very argument falls short or even questions the way God appointed it in the Old Testament. Circumcision was no guarantee for salvation. Jacob I love, Esau I hated. They were both circumcised. Both received the sign and seal of the covenant. One received the promise, the other rejected it, and he was totally responsible in his sin. It's true for all who are baptized. Baptism is no guarantee for salvation. One must embrace Christ by grace through faith. But let us remember that God's everlasting covenant promise to to Abraham was to him and to his offspring after him. In other words, the promise of salvation in Christ was for the whole covenant community, children included. And so baptism, as the replacement of circumcision, rather than removing children from receiving the sign and seal of God's promise, which was established before time, expressed in time in Genesis 3.15 and in, in, in Genesis uh, 17 uh, in the Abrahamic covenant and, and then, of course, all throughout the old covenant. Rather than removing children from receiving the sign and seal of God's promise, it grants greater blessing to God's people by including female members of the covenant community. And so I'll ask you what I, I learned from reading John Owen many years ago is he asked, are we really to believe that with all of the gospel blessings that are brought in the new covenant, that God would then remove children from the membership in the visible covenant community without a clear abrogation of that membership, without clearly saying children are no longer to be considered members of the visible church. There's nothing like that in the New Testament. Are we to think that God, with all the gospel blessings that come, with the coming of Christ and Pentecost, that children are now removed? from membership in the visible church? Are we really to believe that with all these blessings, that lesser blessings would come to our children? Because we believe that baptism is a means of grace, a means whereby God calls people to himself. And it's a means of grace when we tell our children on the Lord's Day when there are baptisms, honey, there's a baptism today. You were baptized, and let's be reminded about what this baptism means. And they are pointed to Christ, and they see the waters, and they are taught. The Apostle Paul underscores this continuity between circumcision and baptism when he writes in Colossians 2, 11 and 12, In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith and the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. All union with Christ's language, all that circumcision and baptism represents and signifies. 
In Christ we die, and in Him we rise to new life. Baptism points us away from ourselves and to the person and work of Christ. But what about the silence of the New Testament? First of all, I don't believe the Bible is silent in the New Testament. It's true there's no explicit word about infants being baptized, but we do read of household baptisms, as I mentioned earlier. Koinias' household in Acts 10, Lydia's household, and the Philippians' jailer household in Acts 16. These, excuse me, also with the children of Jews receiving the sign and seal of the covenant for many generations, surely there would have been questions that would have arisen in the life of the church if their children were no longer to receive the sign and seal of the covenants of grace. So one might ask then, what are the benefits of baptism for a child? Well, number one, their baptism is a constant reminder of the saving promises of God in Christ. Number two, it's an encouragement to parents to raise their children in the Lord. That they would take vows to trust in Christ alone for their own salvation and for the salvation of their children. This baptism of a child is an ever-present reminder to the parents at the baptism and to all parents in the room and in the church that we are called to raise our children in the Lord as members of the visible covenant community. Thirdly, devotion to the covenant community and of the covenant community, rather. At baptism, the church vows to help raise each other's children according to Scripture because we are in covenant with one another. Fourthly, baptism is a reminder of their identity in Christ. Lots of talk about identity these days. Identity politics, LGBTQ plus identity. Everybody wants an identity in something. Our identity is in Christ, amen? That's what our baptism signifies. We are in Christ. When Satan would come to to tempt or to seek to destroy the faith of Martin Luther, he would say, go away from me, devil. I am baptized. In other words, I identify with Christ. I am in him. You cannot touch me. Our children are non-communing members of the church until they make a credible profession of faith and are admitted to the Lord's table by the elders. Therefore, baptism is a reminder to them of who they are and of what they represent as members of the visible church. They are not outsiders. Baptism is a reminder of who they are, consecrated unto the Lord. As a means of grace, fifthly, God will use baptism in the lives of his people, children included. Because baptism is chiefly about God's covenant promise and pledge to us in Christ, because it is chiefly a faith builder and an assurance builder, we must realize that baptism has a lifelong significance. It's not something you do just at one in one service a long time ago, you know, if you're older, and you just sort of don't think about it anymore. Baptism is something we carry with us every day. We wake up as baptized Christians, identifying with Christ chiefly, not with this world, not with my vocation, not with my family chiefly, but chiefly with Christ. I am in Him, and He is in me, and greater is He that is in me than he that is in the world. And I will live my life as a baptized believer, marked by His love and His promises. And so are my children. I raise them in the Lord. And one day we pray that they would make that public profession of faith and come to the Lord's table and begin to partake of the Lord's table as someone who can discern the body and blood of the Lord and can explain the gospel. The initiation is different than the 
ongoing communion with Christ. It was the same in the Old Testament. John Fesco has a marvelous quote that I've quoted before. As we close, quote, when we were in our most helpless of states as babies, incapable of reaching out to God, he reached out to us by marking us with the sign and seal of the gospel, a lifelong signpost of God's grace in Christ. That's true not only for infants, but for adults. When we were in our most helpless of states, and apart from Christ, we're always in our most helpless of states, Incapable of reaching out to God, he reached out to us by marking us with the sign and seal of the gospel, a lifelong signpost of God's grace in Christ. And he goes on. So then how does baptism benefit an infant? Since baptism is first and foremost the sign and seal of God's covenant with his people, it is the visible word of God's promise. As an infant grows up within the bosom of the church, and as his parents raise him in the fear and admonition of the Lord, The child learns who God is, learns into whose name he has been baptized, watches other baptisms, and hears the gospel of Christ preached to his ears and sees the gospel preached to his eyes. The child grows up to learn that he is a part of the covenant community, the body of Christ, which has been redeemed through the life, death, and resurrection and ascension of Christ. And in his ascension, Christ has poured out the life-giving Holy Spirit to redeem a bride for himself and to present her spotless and without blemish before our Heavenly Father on the last day. A person's baptism, therefore, echoes throughout his life and continues to preach the gospel to him long after the day he was given the right. What has baptism to do with discipleship in the life of a covenant child, in a word, everything. Everything. Go into all the world and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them all that I have commanded you, and I will be with you always. When we say we are a disciple-making church, does that include our children? Do we teach our children to call God Father from the earliest of ages? Or do we say, no, you may not call him that until I see visible evidence that you've been born again? And by the way, that's going to be very, that's going to change depending on from what house to house you go to, what those expectations and fruits are that I need to see. In one house, it might be a simple profession. I love Jesus. Okay, get baptized, go to the table, three years old. In another house, it's, all right, you have to jump over these 15 hoops, and you have to be 20 times more spiritual than your mother and I, and then maybe I'll let you get baptized. Anybody hear those stories? You see, baptism is a means of grace to assist us in the making of mature disciples, our children included. And the way you make mature disciples is you point them to the gospel over and over again, showing them Christ. John Owen, in his communion sermons and in his work on baptism, is constantly saying, as he administers these things and gives pre-supper and pre-baptismal sermons, here we get a view of Christ. We get a view of him in the preaching. We get a view of him at the table. 
and we get a view of him at the font, and he is the one to whom we are called to look by grace through faith. And what happens when you do that? You're putting your confidence in the right place. Your assurance is being built up, the assurance of your salvation. Your joy is growing. And your boldness and your courage to be a, a missionary in our culture is increasing. That's what happens when we take seriously and abide in Christ through the means of grace. Beloved Christ Church, our congregation, as we approach our nine-year anniversary in June, in order to, to be healthy and to grow healthier, we must be founded upon the very means that our Lord himself appointed for the life and blessing of his people. Why do we take baptism so seriously in the Reformed and Confessional Church at this church? Because we are Reformed and Confessional <laughs> in this church. Because we are biblical in this church. And baptism is a means by which God promises to point his people to the person and finished work of Christ, a means by which we will be strengthened in our faith, deepened in our assurance of God's saving love, comforted in his promises, and encouraged in our walk with God. Let us pray. Father, thank you for the gift of baptism. And whether we are an older saint or a young child, we pray, Lord, that we would Look to Christ as we consider our baptisms, that water symbolizing his blood, cleansing away our sin, and also the spirit sanctifying us, the washing of regeneration. We thank you, Lord, for the means of grace. We can hardly take glory for you, for things happening around these simple, unadorned, unimpressive means. But Lord, this is what you choose, these ordinary means, so that you would get the glory, so that he who boasts, boasts in the Lord. And we do boast in you. We boast in the work of Christ alone. And we pray that as those who are baptized into your name, initiated into your covenant community, marked by the sign and seal of the covenant of grace, that we would respond to that grace and that gospel with gratitude and love, and obedience to your commands. That we respond with a life pleasing to you, all to your